This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. It can be found in the Black Bible in your pews on page 811. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am uh, really happy to be here, and I'm glad you're here as well. Uh, I'm going to start this morning a little bit differently. The first thing I'm going to do is I want to give a little bit of exhortation and explanation with regards to this uh, Advent season. I just want to say, uh, for those of you that don't know, Advent is a time on the church calendar that's the four Sundays that precedes Easter, or sorry, that precedes Christmas. Easter is also important, but, but it's not right now. Um, so, so over the course of these next four Sundays, you're going to notice a little bit different liturgy. You're going to notice more Old Testament scripture readings. You're going to notice some different things that we're doing, as well as this, these candles down here on the uh, symbolic altar where we have the elements. And it's a time for us to rehearse, remember, rejoice in, and to learn from the birth of Jesus. So I just want to exhort us during this time, during the hustle and bustle of this season, I want to exhort us to slow down, to meditate on what Jesus' birth means for you and for us as a people, Um, in the midst of all the different blinking lights that are trying to get your attention, I just want to exhort us to slow down and meditate on Christ. The other thing I want to do this morning is uh, something that we also don't do uh, very often at our church historically, but I want to talk just for a second about uh, money. And what I mean by that is, for, for some of you in this room, you might not be aware, but normally church budgets kind of, uh, kind of center around what happens in the end-of-year realities of December. <clears throat> so... That means that that means two things for us really, really practically. Okay, this affects all of us. One is, is that on Christmas Eve, we will have a benevolence offering, which means everything that comes in on that Saturday night will go towards benevolence needs. And those needs are primarily and first and foremost members of our body and then members of our body who've had other needs kind of come across their path where we partner with them to help meet other people's needs. And we will we'll receive that offering on Christmas Eve night. So I'm just saying that to get it on your radar to make you aware of it. We'll, we'll find some way for people to give online as well because you, you have to do that in today's uh, modern world. But um, between now and then, we'll figure that out. But right now, I just want you to have that on your radar. Christmas Eve, Saturday night, our 5 p.m. service, we will have a benevolence offering that night. And then the other thing about money that I want to say is just that um, 
this end of year giving is a big, uh, it's a big milestone for the yearly budget for churches in general, which means everything that we bring in over the course of December helps us chart a course forward for how we're doing financially. The fact is, is that because of different ways that God's provided for our church and we're connected to another church in Midtown, our, our financial position overall is really strong with lots of savings and things like that. But our church has also encountered lots of disruption over the last year. In addition to that, there's been a kind of reshuffling of the church in the West all over the United States where you have uh, a lot of people in this body who are new or newer, and they're joining a new church home kind of tentatively or cautiously. So I want to do this morning is just to officially ask us all to kind of um, dig in and participate and say, if you, if you consider this your church home, if you consider this a place where your faith is strengthened and you engage in and get connected to the kind of Christian community that you need, I would invite you to consider joining us and partnering with us financially as well. This year, this, this month, the next like four or five weeks will be really big for us in figuring out where we stand and what kind of future we can begin to strategize for, for mission and multiplication and what God's doing here. And I want to I make an official kind of exhortation and invitation to our people to give, to give above and beyond. The Lord God provides for every single thing that we need. He will do what he wants to do in this church, and we will receive it cheerfully with thanksgiving. We don't trust in horses or chariots in this place. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, and he invites us to participate in how he provides for his people. So with that, let me pray for us, and then we will spend the rest of the morning talking about forgiveness. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for every single way that you provide for us. Thank you for all the ways that you love us and care for us and watch over us. Thank you for your power and your might and your majesty. Spirit of the living God, would you move in this place? Would you convict our hearts? Would you change us? Would you comfort us? Would you strengthen us? Would you uphold the weary and the weak? And would you knock down the arrogant and the prideful lovingly and gently? We desire to hear your word in the places in our heart where we're being resistant or frustrated or doubting. So would you pierce our hearts Would you cut us to the quick? Let us receive your word with humility, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, there's a ton... There's a ton packed into these, uh, these two verses, and we could discuss this from a few different angles this morning, but it's my belief today that we have, we have a really amazing opportunity. We have the opportunity to take in, to, to integrate into our lives, to absorb more, more of the counter-cultural and counter-worldly gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we need to ask ourselves this morning, is there anything more anti-spirit of the age than true Christian forgiveness? Anything. Is there anything in our right now, in this time in history, in your time, in my time, that's more different than the social climate that we live in than the Christian concept of forgiveness, full forgiveness? And I'm willing to say that that the answer to that is probably not. We live in a time when leaders and even Christian theologians are writing books on why you don't need to forgive anybody, and they're trying to use the Bible to do it. But forgiveness remains central, central to Christian theology, and it remains central to cultivating Christian relationships. Forgiveness isn't optional. It isn't going above and beyond in some exceptional way. It's the bread and butter of Christians living in this world. Forgiveness is commanded. Forgiveness is a matter of obedience. Forgiveness is freedom. Forgiveness and an overall disposition or a spirit of forgiveness must mark the Christian life. Listen to this quote from John Stott in reference to our passage today. These texts certainly, you see, that it does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, that proves that we have minimized our own. So in order to talk about forgiveness today, I'm going to spend time in two other places in Matthew mainly. We'll spend time in the parable of the unmerciful servant, and I'll spend time with Peter's question to Jesus where he says, how often should I forgive my brother? I'm going to turn to these two other places in Matthew because if we are to obey this instruction from Jesus, we have to understand what forgiveness is and why it's necessary We have to ask, what do we need to remember first? What's the reason? What's the reason that we have to deal with forgiveness and understanding forgiveness in this life? So I want to remind us of a truth, of reality, something that we we, we walk through in our lives every single day. I want to remind you of what Jesus said about the life that we live in the here and now. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my closest friend, whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
And finally, in, in Job 19.19, it says, My close friends detest me. Those I loved have turned against me. And then consider this lengthy section from 1 Peter 4 where it says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I could go on and belabor this point indefinitely, but what I'm trying to explain, what I'm really trying to explain to this congregation, this group of people, is that you're going to be hurt by other people in this life. That's a fact. You're going to be harmed in this life. You will be betrayed and lied to and hated and despised, sometimes by the world and sometimes by other Christians. The pain and the difficulty you will suffer in this life demands justice. The pain and suffering and sin in this world actually demands a just payment, and that's right. It's called righteousness, and God is the righteous one. All sin demands just punishment, but Christians are told to not seek their own vengeance because that belongs to God alone. We're told that because the opportunity to make the wrong choice is going to happen. The opportunity for you to take vengeance yourself is going to happen in this life a lot. You're going to be treated unfairly. You're going to be treated unjustly. You're going to be treated sinfully. You are. You just are. And sometimes that'll be by an enemy. And many times that'll be from a friend or a family member. And so we have to ask the question, how do we deal with that as Christians? And friends, we're not greater than our master. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was framed. Jesus was unjustly lied about and gossiped about and slandered. All before he was mocked and derided and beaten and slashed open and crucified. And we'll suffer some version of that kind of suffering. You're going to get lots of chances in this life to put texts about forgiveness into practice. Lots of opportunity. Because you're going to suffer You're going to suffer betrayal. You're going to suffer pain. You're going to suffer heartache. But we want to live through our suffering in a way that brings glory to God and freedom to our lives. So how do you do that? And I'm going to keep today really simple. I want to define what forgiveness is. And I want to use the parable from Matthew 18 to help us understand it. And my goal in that is for us to wake up up. My goal in that is for us to feel the significance of forgiveness. And I I also want to assert two things. I want to assert that we're commanded to forgive and we're commanded to forgive unendingly. So what is forgiveness? 
and then we're commanded to do it. That is to forgive others, forgive all others, forgive anyone and everyone, and forgive them unendingly. There's not a cap on what we can forgive or a cap on how many times we are to forgive. Listen to, first of all, listen to this definition of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is relieving someone of a debt that they truly owe. One author says it this way, forgiveness is giving up our right to get what is owed. It's giving up our right to retaliate. And Jesus uses a parable for us to understand the weight of this in Matthew 18. So I'm going to read it for, I'm going to read that parable for us now from Matthew 18 verses 23 to 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had so that payment could be made. And the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And then out of pity, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I want to consider three things from this parable. I want to talk about how we all have an insurmountable debt. We have a mountain of debt that's too big for us. I want to talk about how we tend to be exacting with other people and gracious toward ourselves. And I want to talk about only those who truly understand that they've been forgiven can be forgiving people. First, we are in insurmountable debt. This parable starts off with a king who wants to settle accounts, and that king is God in the parable, and the servant who owes 10,000 talents is us. We need to keep that straight. We're not the king. We're not the other servant. The point of the story, at least one point, is for you to understand that. Jesus is being kind to us by letting us in on the dynamics of our very own hearts. And first, he wants you to know and understand that you have a bill that you cannot pay. You can't understand what forgiveness is until you understand that, until we understand that, until I get the fact that I have a bill that I cannot afford to pay ever. 
It's unrealistic for me to believe that I can pay it off. You've offended and sinned against a holy and perfect and loving and righteous God. We've put ourselves in a hole that we cannot climb out of. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What sin earns us is death, and all of us have sinned. In our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, we have traded the glory of God for the glory of created beings. And that deserves judgment. It's unrighteous. It's ungodly. And it deserves just punishment. That's our debt. That's what we owe. The Bible's clear and it's real. You can't escape. And unless someone else pays that debt, we're the ones that will have to pay for it. That's the offensive part. The Bible's not a book that's worried about offending us. And we can't smooth out its hard truths. God's holy. God is holy. And we trample on his holiness every time that we sin. That's the debt that's owed, and it is insurmountable. You owe way more money than you could ever pay back. That's the point. We need to feel that. We can't get out of the trouble that we're in with the living God. Plain and simple. We don't have what it takes. But we tend to hear that truth and act exactly like our wicked servant in this parable. We tend to be exacting with others and gracious toward ourselves. This servant goes out and chokes someone else for not paying him back, paying him back a tiny amount compared to what he owed. We're exacting with others in the moment that we forget or just don't care about the debt that Jesus has paid for us. That's reality. You can't, you can't be bitter and resentful and appreciate your own forgiveness in Christ at the same time. Those things can't exist simultaneously. You can't hold a grudge and love your own forgiveness at the same time. You can't be counting your spouse's flaws and delight in what Jesus has done for you at the same time. The moment you become exacting with others, you've forgotten what God's done for you to some degree, or you've forgotten its magnitude, or you've forgotten your own guilt, the darkness in our own hearts. We don't forgive our neighbor because it makes sense. We forgive our neighbor because of the scandalous grace that's been offered to us by God. But when we hold grudges, when we harbor resentment or contempt or bitterness, we don't understand what we've been forgiven of. That's the point. We read this parable and we say, we look at this man and we say, you hard-hearted fool. The unmerciful servant is arrogant and proud and he can't see what's right in front of his face. He's just been forgiven an amount that he could never repay. And then he goes and, and chokes out his buddy. And this is a picture of our hearts 
our hearts every time that they resist extending forgiveness. The dynamic in this parable is obvious. Your attitude and your posture toward others should not be determined by what they owe you. It should be determined by how much you owed God. Your relationship with other people should not function according to what you think you deserve, but according to what God deserved and what you and I never gave him. Your willingness to forgive another human being should be affected by the model of Jesus forgiving you. It's a fair question for us to ask ourselves. If, G- if Jesus treated me the way I'm interacting with this person, where would I be? Where would I be in that moment? And I want us to feel that, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ climbed on a cross and died for us. He paid a bill for every penny of debt that we ever had or ever will have. The only perfect man took on all your guilt and he paid all your debts. So go and forgive others the same way that you have been forgiven. And my third point about this parable is that only forgiven people can be forgiving people. I want to make it real this morning. I want it to sting for us because Christian forgiveness, it isn't a personality trait. It's not an amicable, amicable kind of sensibility that some of us have and other, others of us don't. Forgiveness of others is not minimizing or playing pretend. Christian forgiveness only happens if you understand in the bottom of your heart that you had real debts that you could never, ever pay back. And that makes me want to ask us if we get that. If we feel the weight of that. Do you understand that God, do you understand this morning that God hunted you down while you didn't want anything to do with him? Does it matter? We hated him. We were his enemy and he tracked us down and rescued us and saved us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do we remember what it felt like to be lost? Do we even believe that we truly were blind? Romans 1 says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Romans 1, 30. Unforgiveness, unforgiveness is a symptom of not believing that Romans chapter 1 is real or true. It's a symptom of unbelief. It's a fruit of not believing the truth about yourself and what's been done for you. If you can see, 
If God opens your eyes to see your sin for what it is, then forgiveness truly is the only option. But we don't think about our sin. We don't think about our sin when we're the ones that are offended. We demand justice. We demand vengeance. And that posture is actually bondage. But when we see that the last thing that we want is justice for ourselves, then we can soften our hearts in forgiveness towards other people. Obedience to Christ brings freedom, and the scriptures command us to forgive one another. We are commanded to forgive. I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You and I, you and I are commanded to forgive one another. We're commanded to forgive as the Lord forgave us. It's recorded somewhere that C.S. Lewis once said, we're all fans of forgiveness up until the moment that we're the ones who've been wronged. And I think we, I think we get that. And that's actually the point of forgiveness. When you forgive another person, you're paying a bill that's theirs. You're paying a bill of a debt that they incurred. Forgiveness is giving up our right to get what is owed. It's giving up our right to retaliate. Let me mention two things about the command to forgive. The first one is that it isn't forgiveness unless someone has incurred a real debt and you can't practice this until you've been wronged. I want want to mention that concept. And then the other concept I want to mention is that forgiveness isn't ignoring or pretending like it didn't happen. Forgiveness is when you've really been sinned against. It's when in truth you have been wronged or hurt or violated. And instead of ignoring it or pretending that it didn't happen, you acknowledge it for what it is and then you pay for it. You forgive it. To relinquish the right to vengeance, you let go of what was truly owed to you. You give up a justifiable right to retaliate. You forgive what they owe. This isn't pretending that what happened didn't happen, and it isn't just sweeping something under the rug. It's truly seeing and understanding that you've been wronged. And then making a choice to forgive. Not because that other person deserves it. Because they, because they don't. They don't deserve it. But you make the choice anyway. Because you didn't deserve it either. The logic of forgiveness 
is defined is defined by God's relationship to us and his action toward us, not whether or not somebody's met all your conditions for forgiveness. Whether or not we're conscious of it, we tend to demand certain qualifications and conditions of others before we'll offer them a heart posture of forgiveness. We're demanding that they pay first with our conditions that we've kind of placed on them, whether or not we've told them what those conditions are or not. But that's not how forgiveness works. The truth is, is that those The truth is is that those who need forgiveness the most deserve it the least. Those who need forgiveness the most actually deserve it the least. And the Bible explains only those who've been forgiven much will love much. And that doesn't mean go out and sin like crazy so that you can be forgiven a whole host of things. It means when you get When you get how much you've been forgiven, when you get just a glimpse of how much you've been forgiven truly, when you see how much Jesus loved you when he died on the cross for your sin, that will make you a loving person. The unmerciful servant didn't really give a rip. He wasn't concerned with grasping the sheer enormity of the mercy that was extended to him. And at the end of the day, he didn't get mercy. He got justice. But blessed are the merciful because they'll be the ones who experience God's mercy. And we're commanded to forgive. We're commanded to forgive unendingly. Listen to Matthew 18 Verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This verse precedes the parable of the unmerciful servant. Peter asks his master, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who sinned against me? And the answer essentially is every single time. All the times that somebody sins against you. There's no limit. We're prone to put limits on forgiveness. We want it to have an expiration date, but it doesn't. We want a quota, but Jesus says this, and he's grounding it. He grounds it in an explanation of the fact that we've been forgiven more than we could ever pay back. If you've been forgiven a billion dollars, every $10 debt that your buddy owes you should be easy for you to forgive. If we truly understand what we've been forgiven, but we don't do this, we don't do this very well. We have unstated expectations on people that they get three strikes and then we don't have to forgive them anymore. Then we can punish them. I've heard a lot of this in the past couple of years, especially, and it doesn't sound quite as obvious or ugly as Peter's question. But let me, let, me, uh, let me give you an example of what it does sound like in our day and age. 
someone comes to you or someone comes to me and they say, hey, so this person did X, Y, Z. They sinned against me. They hurt me. I'm offended. Um, My relationship with them is broken and I'm hurt by that. And then I ask that person, have you talked with that person about this? Have you given them the opportunity to ask for your forgiveness? Have you reconciled? Have you approached them? And then the response is, no way. Huh? I'm not talking to them. That wouldn't do any good because they're never going to change anyway. And I think I have to say this morning, the forgiveness, our posture of forgiveness, our spirit of forgiveness towards other people has nothing to do with whether or not they change. Ever. Other people changing their behavior has nothing to do with whether or not you forgive them. It can have a massive consequence as to whether or not you're able to stay in relationship, as to whether or not you're able to be reconciled, and especially whether or not you're actually able to be restored with that person. But the behavior of other people has nothing to do with whether or not you're able to forgive them. Forgiveness is about your heart, not about their heart. Forgiveness is about your heart, not other people's behavior. If you find yourself, and if you find yourself gossiping or slandering, or like Proverbs says, uncovering an offense when you should uncovering an offense that somebody else has done against you, if you find yourself doing that, that's an opportunity for you to question whether or not you've actually released that person and forgiven them from the heart. Proverbs 79 says that whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And what's popular today, the catechism that we're getting from the outside is to forgive once, Maybe forgive twice, but if the offender can't get it right after that, then give up on them and cancel them and hold a grudge against them, and then you hold court on Facebook or you hold court on Twitter and you tell them that their actions prove to you that they aren't really sorry. And none of those examples are what God says about biblical forgiveness. You see, forgiveness hurts. It hurts because it costs us. That's the point. You're the one paying a debt that you didn't owe. And of course, Of course they don't deserve it. Of course they don't deserve it. If they deserved it, then it wouldn't be forgiveness. You didn't deserve it either. And if Jesus used our logic, if Jesus said, well, he's just going to do it again, then none of us would be forgiven. A great way to remember this can be with a short phrase that I'm kind of trying out in my own life. It's kind of, um, it's a way that I talk to myself to help my heart be tender towards reconciliation and forgiveness. And it's, it's when I preach the gospel to myself and say, 
Forgiveness is always about me and my heart. And sometimes it's about other people. Sometimes I get the opportunity to take steps to repair that relationship. But it's always about my heart, my relationship with God, my understanding about how he forgave me and cleansed me and covered my sin. And sometimes it has to do with other people in my life. We want to be the kind of people that strive for reconciliation and strive for restoration because those are glorious facets of redemption. But you can forgive even someone who's maybe passed away if you can no longer demand in your heart that they be punished. If you can let it go and give that to God, give away that right. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to forget. In fact, there are horrendous examples of sinful actions where wisdom requires us to remember. So it doesn't require that you forget, but it does mean that you don't harbor bitterness or resentment or contempt or anger. It does mean that you don't harbor scorn for that person. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation every single time. You can forgive without being reconciled, but you can't be reconciled without forgiveness. Reconciliation is sometimes the outcome, and sometimes it isn't. But forgiveness precedes any attempt to reconcile. Reconciliation requires confession and repentance, but forgiveness doesn't. Reconciliation requires both parties, but your part of forgiveness is between you and God. It's between you and God. The application and exhortation this morning is pretty obvious, right? It is fitting for us this morning to finish the sermon by focusing on the table, to focus on Christ's blood and Christ's torn body. It's fitting for us to finish this sermon focusing on that because the scales of justice will be balanced in the end. That's a fact. The cosmic scales of justice will be balanced at the end of time. Either Jesus will pay for our sin or our sin will be punished at the final judgment. No drop of injustice and sin will go unaccounted for. Not a single drop. Christians don't gather around cozy feelings. We don't gather around a myth. We don't gather around sentimentality. We gather around a Roman cross where the God-man, Jesus Christ, was crucified so that we wouldn't have to pay a debt that we all owed. And we celebrate that. And we proclaim that. And we do that every single week by taking communion. And as you think about that, as you meditate on the realities of what you've been forgiven, 
Ask the Spirit of God before you take communion. Ask the Spirit of God to bring to mind faces and hearts of people that you need to give up your right for vengeance or your right to retaliate. The application is a clear exhortation to us. It's right in front of our face to forgive other people just like Jesus forgave us. As God has forgiven you, forgive others. One author, one author points out a connection between our relationship with God and a heart posture of unforgiveness towards other people when he says this, quote, remember, remember that the abundant life Jesus came to give us in John 10, 10, is only available to us through the abiding life in John 15. Will the loss of an abiding relationship with Christ that will result from disobedience be worth the harboring of bitterness? That's the question. Is the relishing of your bitterness or resentment more valuable to you than the relishing of your forgiveness, the truth and reality of what God's done for you? So this morning, I want to exhort you and invite you to abandon scorn, abandon anger, reject bitterness, frustration, contempt, and hard-heartedness, and instead, instead, forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So if you're putting all of your hope in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to come forward and take communion. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have uh, a station down here to my right and my left and a station a little bit further over to the left that is gluten-free and single serve. We'll have a station up in the balcony as well. We also have prayer ministers over here underneath the stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody in the room about anything, perhaps uh, a resistant heart to forgiveness or perhaps something else in your life that you need prayer for. They'd love to pray for you for anything. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up and I'm going to pray and thank Christ for his sacrifice and then the the servers will come up as well. So would you join with me as uh, as I pray? Jesus, Thank you for your shed blood. Jesus, thank you for your broken body. 
Thank you that we can be forgiven. Completely forgiven. Thank you that our debt can be paid. I ask right now that you would convict our hearts. Those of us in this room who are self-righteously convinced that we can pay our own debts, I ask that you would um, correct that and convict that. For those of us who have a hard time believing that we're forgiven, I ask, Holy Spirit, would you minister to that soul in this room right now? Would you help them to relish and love and meditate on their complete forgiveness? Would you sink that reality deeper into our hearts so that we can be loving people, we can be forgiving people? And would you do that right now, I ask, in the name of Jesus? Amen. Come up when you are ready.